the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It, it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. Often and unfortunately, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose, in fact, three purposes. Uh, He said, we're going to make man male and female, and the first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are. Um, made in our image. Our image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. In fact, when God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion 
over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people. He wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to to give them instruction on how they were to to function as men and then he says then i'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed and so god always starts with the man that's why in the garden god said adam where are you not adam and eve where are y'all (laughs) <laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes, it should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we, we, we have to understand that the uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, 
God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man, a man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. Uh, it's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the the continuation of that passage says, "In husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church." And of course, if we look at that model, we realize well. Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior, and the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really, really ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have joined us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' Lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table to bear when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. 
He cannot he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, One thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom, and this is turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal, and there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth, and it's it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. Well, absolutely. Um, As you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take, can uh, start off maybe in our mind small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged, and uh, you you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before He wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriages, and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are, there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is, um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a, a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. Uh, one time I was, uh, a guy ran into my car and uh and and then ran off and then uh, drove off so here i'm I'm going around with a dent that i didn't create and every time i look at that dent uh i'm reminded i'm I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong but what that dent was doing it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings 
So I had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was a decision of my will. But what, what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two they related but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person, uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's, there's an individual, uh, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, one, you hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. But I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for a reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there, in in the sense that the wounded or the the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the person who committed the sin needs to repent, and repentance, repentance is not just a word. It's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit, that demonstrates you really mean it, you really meant what you said by things you do that are different, that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get to couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand, something small but done regularly because men are tourists for being inconsistent that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and I, uh, when I say daily, I mean regularly because I know you won't hit it every day. But but let her know that God is a part of this relationship and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf, anything else. You, she, you, she can zero in on your eyes and she can share. If you, 
if she's doing this every week, well, she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, make sure you are dating her. And by dating her, I don't mean asking her, what do you want to do today? I mean, you, you doing things that are fun for both of you. You can't discuss any problems on a date. That's strictly for fun, and you do it on a regular basis given you know, the realities of your life. Then I ask the woman to do one thing, make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stay full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping and you watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit. And you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do, and that is he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called, and the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would, I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent, because at my house it would be, you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority... My rules go, and if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jans joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, 
the pitfalls of media, technology, and social marketing. And Dr. Jantz, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody inappropriately. There's got to be a backstory. Please tell oh, me. Oh, there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of this Several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on. And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Let's talk about a couple of things. First, as a bit of background, or and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a a bit of a a battle between parents. It is. And, of course, the kids are caught in the middle of it. and we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Well, let's talk what's about your, this, because I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that, you know, this child has her, her rights, and after all, it's an invasion of privacy, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm thinking to myself, really, in, in 2016, knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the Internet, behind uh, social media sites, everything from uh, you know pedophiles to, uh, well, you just about name it, uh, e- even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves, what what thinking logical parent would say, oh, yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote-unquote, I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first, that I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to... Um Really, are we working on protecting our kids? Um, you know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening, or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Jantz, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to hers. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. 
to discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police, who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first tech, uh, generation to be tethered to technology. And there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are. And every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds. You know, Facebook is old news. We're off to uh, other things. And um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, We have instant live uh, videoing now. And there's some apps like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is, is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy ought to trump your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the hooskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? 
A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here, daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that, says the daughter. I'm confiscating confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls a typical 12-year-old conniption fit, goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now... That's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, it's more of a question comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact a topic of cell phones that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, that the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right, and you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um, and I'm just glad that the uh, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it's, uh, it was appears that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jans, and that is the notion that you know we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say now don't don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if, you, if, if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property? Why do we call them children then? Why don't we just say that they're, you know, miniature adults? That's right. Well, good point. You know, and I think, too, another bigger picture is um, – how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting? We know that um, uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, and how do we set up technology rules for our family and our household? And what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. 
And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying that, the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, invisible level of communication, connection uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity that parents uh, probably for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received uh, sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. And it can really set you up to have an addictive-type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things, like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarella's raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. And, yeah. and yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner one night a week. It's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day, and you, you learn how to – do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face to face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? 
Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of 20, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch-up. And what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um, manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people. And the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others. But uh, it needs to be a case where parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jan suggests. How about a disconnected, turn it off evening for the entire family? Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, a friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 the you know, who's taking who the, to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen and then we repeat. Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.